0: Hello and welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Kate Adlington, clinical editor at the BMJ and psychiatry trainee and today we'll be discussing hypoactive delirium, a subtype of delirium that's characterised by symptoms of drowsiness and inactivity. It tends to capture less clinical attention than the more restless and agitated presentation of hyperactive delirium. Yet this hypoactive presentation occurs in about 50% of people presenting with delirium and is seen in a variety of patients and settings. A practice pointer article published in the BMJ this week argues that hypoactive delirium is both more difficult to recognise and also associated with worse outcomes for patients than the hyperactive subtype. I'm joined by one of the authors of this article, Dr Christian Hosker, Consultant Liaison Psychiatrist and Lead Clinician at Leeds & York Partnership Foundation Trust. Thanks very much for joining us Christian.
1: Yeah, no problem. Hi.
0: talked before on a previous podcast a little bit about the management of delirium, but in this article you've obviously chosen to focus specifically on this subtype of hypoactive delirium. Um, Maybe you can start just by telling us a little bit more about how we define this subtype and why you thought it was a good clinical subject to um, cover.
1: Um, yeah, I mean it's um, the uh, well, starting with why it's important. Um, it, it, it was that comes from a kind of awareness that um, it's a form of delirium um, that's readily missed, so it's harder to pick up, it's not as obvious as uh, as the hyperactive form. Um, it's still delirium, it's still got the key components of delirium in terms of the deficits in cognition, the problems with attention, the fluctuations and the, uh, the kind of abrupt onset. But the hyperactive form is um, the type of delirium where someone's withdrawn, apathetic, drowsy, Quiet, essentially, not causing problems in a in a busy hospital ward, not coming to people's attention. Whereas the hyperactive form uh, is much more obvious. It, it's the it's the kind of textbook um, presentation that people will um, think about when they, when they see the the term delirium of someone being overactive, um, uh, agitated, uh, perhaps hallucinating, and very much coming to people's Attention uh, and the issue and the the, the bit I, I was keen to highlight was to make sure that people are aware that um, the that the um, hyperactive form exists and actually is more common and is, and and almost certainly has um, a worse outcome as well than the the hyperactive form.
0: And and uh, what well, I think what I was surprised, maybe many people would be surprised to read, is that actually this hypoactive subtype is. So as prevalent as it is, so it's 50% of, um, of people with delirium and up to 80% have the mixed subtype. And I wonder if you, it's a surprise because actually it's that 20% who are the ones that you're more likely to get a bleep about when you're on call or, or going to be, you know, have relatives sort of calling worried about that person. So in clinicians' minds, they, they might seem to make up sort of majority of people with delirium, but actually that's not the case
1: that's right, yeah, there's just something about the the hyperactive form that um whether in the way uh, health professionals are educated or just it's just uh, um, it just captures their attention um, in terms of the the clinical work but that picture tends to stick, uh, and the problem with that is that that other eighty percent um, that that uh, have mixed forms or the fifty percent that are purely hyperactive. Are just not at the, the forefront of clinicians thinking all the time, and uh, there's a real danger then that they're just missed and and not attended to.
0: Yeah, and and perhaps to make it even more complicated, there's that subset of people who might have this mixed subtype.
1: That's right. Yeah. So it does complicate the picture, and and you know, and often as health professionals, we're seeing so sort of snapshots of people. So we might see. You know, within that single individual we might just get the snapshot when they are more withdrawn um, and, and I think that's not there's nothing abnormal about that that's the, the kind of danger um, and uh, whereas I think if people see the, the kind of hyperactive forms of delirium they're much more sort of tuned into that um, and more likely to, to pick up um, that something's actually gone wrong here.
0: One of the things I thought was really interesting that you discussed in the article and um, was about the experience of people with um, delirium. And again, we might have the kind of misconception that people with hyperactive delirium, because they appear more agitated, you know, might find their experience of delirium more distressing. But actually, you you discuss um, how, you know, evidence that shows that people with the hypoactive subtype can find it just as scary. Both them and their carers can find it just as scary and distressing um, as the hyperactive type
1: yeah that's right and um i mean it, it's not exactly an area that's usually researched but but there's but there is evidence to um it, which feels a bit counterintuitive actually, but there is evidence saying that yeah those hyperactive that those patients with hypoactive delirium are actually just as distressed as the the, the more obviously for the external observer um uh, distressed patients. so like I said, it's a bit counterintuitive because we're saying um in a way these patients are are falling into the hyperactive group because they're overactive, and agitated, um, or obviously agitated. Uh, but the, but this but that the, the, there is evidence suggesting that actually the, those withdrawn, underactive patients, although they they might they're perhaps not displaying overt signs of agitation, are actually experiencing internally, um, at, at, you know, just the same levels of distress. Um, There's, again, nothing straightforward. So to complicate that picture a little bit, there's some other evidence suggesting that patients with the hyperactive form are less likely to actually recall uh, the episode than patients who have had the the hyperactive uh, form. And I guess I'm just speculating, but there might be something about, I guess, that because of what happens around a hyperactive delirious patient, that there might be more of a sort of narrative that follows them through their their journey as a patient rather than that quietly sort of confused patient who um, who therefore cognitively has slightly less um, sort of action, as it were, to to remember anyway. Um, and then there's the issue of carers, that, you know, there's um, y- you could fall into the trap of, of thinking that um, a hypoactive presentation isn't distressing to carers. Again, evidence says that it is still it's distressing um, for carers to see, um, you know, family members or whatever, uh, to be confused. You know, regardless of whether they're hyperactive or hypoactive, um, the evidence suggests that they find the hyperactive forms uh, more distressing, actually, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly. Um, but they'll still find, you know, it, it's not, you know, it's not pleasant seeing a, a loved one, family member or whatever, confused in any form. And I suppose that exposes a, another issue with, with, um, that kind of goes hand in hand with the hyperactive form, that the fact that carers are finding the hyperactive form more distressing means that they're probably uh, more likely to act on, on what they're observing, whereas the kind of quiet, hyperactive stuff doesn't sort of uh, kind of key in a response in the same way as that hyperactive uh, agitated presentation would do.
0: And I I suppose that starts to um, touch on this issue that um, you discuss again about the fact that hypoactive delirium perhaps is more easily missed, um, like Mm. you say, amongst carers, both carers, but also amongst doctors, and potentially even misdiagnosed for other um, conditions. Tell us a bit more about that.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, I guess the, you know...
0: um,
1: In a way, at best, it might be misdiagnosed as something else, but at worst, it's just going to be completely missed. And um, there's probably something, again, about this sort of snapshot as doctors, health professionals that we see often of patients that where we're relying on uh, to diagnose the syndrome, we're relying on sort of being pretty sure there's been a change that's happened somewhere along the line and a pretty abrupt change. Um, But that patient in front of you is withdrawn... Quiet isn't causing a problem. Um, there isn't going to be a red flag there that there's something wrong and that something's changed. So, what the evidence suggests is that you know patients the hyperactive form patients um, it, that they're simply missed. Um, where stuff is picked up because of the nature of uh, of, uh, of the presentation, then it can be you know pretty easily confused with other types of presentations that will also um, involve that kind of apathetic withdrawn behaviour. So um, the the most common one really is is depression. So again, there's evidence suggesting that a a fair proportion of patients who are uh, referred with suspected depression in hospital settings have actually got a hypoactive delirium. And obviously, you know, the, the management strategy for those Groups are completely different, you know. So it's important that we can make a distinction. Um, You you mentioned a a complicated uh, complications of the issue at the start, and there's another complication here because, of course, um, the the other mistake that can be made is um, thinking it's actually that this is a chronic condition. This uh, withdrawn, uh, confused patient is chronically withdrawn and confused because they've got a dementia. Um, Now, you you obviously, we wouldn't want to mistake something that's potentially reversible um, and is a sign that something physiologically is going very wrong uh, for dementia. Uh, The complication is that the uh, patients with dementia are going to be more at risk of of, uh, delirium in terms of the whole syndrome, so, you know, it's very possible. Um, and actually probably more likely that you're going to get um, a hypoactive delirium superimposed on a pre-existing uh, dementia and therefore unpicking that and establishing a diagnosis, it, you know, becomes difficult. But but again, you know, not difficult but not impossible, I think, with uh, the right degree of um, uh, inquisitiveness and making sure there's a longitudinal history and getting um, history of relatives and so forth. It, it's possible to make this distinction.
0: So, you sort of obviously talking about the importance of making the diagnosis, um, and again, you mentioned in the piece that, th- that there's evidence that suggests that people with hyperactive delirium actually have worse outcomes than um, the other subtypes of delirium. Mm. Do do you think that's is that related to the fact that there is this um, missed diagnosis? Maybe there's a delayed diagnosis, or are there other um, factors? And and, and and what what are those worse outcomes?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, from the literature, the the, the worse outcomes are um, a greater frequency of falls. So there seems to be an association with that. Um, but you know, greater mortality, a greater a longer stay in hospital, and um, less reversibility um, of the of the underlying cause. Um, or less reversibility of the of the episode of delirium. Um, the issue about why that is, why would hyperactive, if that actually is the case, why would hyperactive delirium be associated with those worse outcomes? Um, well, there isn't, you know, there isn't um, a single piece of kind of evidence to go to to sort of display that. But so again, it becomes slightly uh, speculative. But would make sense. Um, it would make sense that that's something to do with the fact that this type of presentation is, you know, harder to pick up. And um, the, you know, if, if if we're not picking these cases up until they've become established, uh, by which point the underlying physiological, biological cause that's driving it has become more established, then of course the outcome is going to be, um, you know, unsurprisingly worse. And um and I suppose it's also something about how the effect that being hypoactive has on a patient as well and um you know, being unable to um feed yourself, uh, for example, being pretty static in bed, you know, in a hospital, it does make you very prone to um, accrue more and more problems.
0: I I found it really useful um again in the article you, you... Sort of broke down and looked at the different factors that might make hypoactive delirium more difficult to spot. Um, can you tell tell us a little bit about that? How you kind of conceptualise those different? How, how how you laid out those different factors?
1: Um, well, I think I was sort of thinking about broad headings, and I, I'd, I've I've seen that those you know same headings used elsewhere actually in a helpful way. So. Um, it, it's you know, there's the some of the stuff I've talked already about really sort the, of the nature of the condition, you know, something that's not a um you know a vivid sort of change from baseline not an obvious uh change isn't gonna kinda capture people's attention. So, you know, there's there's that difficulty already. Um there's and then that's happening within a healthcare system that's um you know often sees people uh it, it, go passing through different sort of clinical teams from one setting to another um into hospital out of hospital etc and um, where again a change from baseline isn't going to be necessarily that obvious you know even if it's um carers going into someone's home but different carers each day they might not pick up those those changes um there's something about again this sort of lack of alarm bells going off really with a presentation like this so if um, you know does the message that someone has become more withdrawn um, has been uh, less active over a few days has had an abrupt onset of that does that sort of message really sort of ring alarm bells Um, in primary care for example would it get the same response as someone's been um, you know Clearly confused and appears to be hallucinating, and is, is, is proving to be unmanageable in their home. And I, don't, I just don't think it does get the the, the same sort of response. Um, the people who are prone, you know, to 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 both types of delirium, um, you know, tends to be elderly patients, often isolated. So again, an elderly, isolated patient who's become less active, more withdrawn. Um, isn't going to set those alarm bells off. They're, they're probably not going to be in a position to do that themselves anyway. So they're, they're relying on someone else to, to to flag up something's gone wrong. And um, and and I think, as I was saying at the start, really, there's something about the the workforce um, issue. You know, there's a there's this image of delirium and what that is and what that looks like, which um, only covers. A smaller proportion of the presentations, you know the hyperactive form and doesn't really cater doesn 't really hit home um, uh, the fact that you know a lot of patients are not going to present in that hyperactive state, so there's probably work to be done there about increasing awareness of the of the different forms
0: and and I suppose that's similar to work that's been going on around dementia, and you mentioned it that um you know, this assumption yeah. that it's normal for older people as they age to become more forgetful or disorientated. And actually, mm. we need to mm. challenge that perception. And, you know, it's not normal. And, you know, if there is this change, that needs to be investigated. And, you yeah. know, there could yeah. be an underlying cause that needs to be investigated.
1: Yeah, yeah. absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, so what what do you think? Doctors can do to be more vigilant to this possibility of um hyperactive delirium, and 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 c- can we prevent it, or is it just about spotting it um sooner?
1: Um, well, in terms of prevention, then there is evidence that again, this is it, this, this isn't particularly evidence about hyperactive forms, but there's you know there's reasonable evidence that systematic prevention strategies can um, stop uh, cases or patients at risk of actually evolving into you know a full delirium say where and there's various examples of of that sort of systematic prevention strategies being uh, successfully used um in terms of individual clinicians and, and what they might do it's probably again that sort of um you know to an extent it's the awareness isn't it really and it's a bit difficult to say you know um it, it, clinicians, I guess they're either aware or they're not aware, aren't they? So there's the wider system about how you make sure clinicians are aware about this other form. Um, but if assuming clinicians are aware that that um, this can be quite a subtle uh, presentation, then it's it's making it's making it's not stopping, I suppose, with just what's in front of you. It's making sure the assessment is broadened out into, you know, is this normal for? Um, for for where that patient currently is, you know, do have they got a pre-existing dementia diagnosis? Uh, against the systems issues around that, that you know, that isn't a diagnosis that's often recorded very well um, in in healthcare settings. But, but but making sure people are digging a in, into that a little bit. Um, you know, good handover of information, I suppose, when, you know, whether it's carers going into someone's home or whether it's changes of uh, shifts of staff on a ward that, you know, looking out for those changes. Um, and then there's um, there are some tools that people can use as well. If that, you know, I can see how, you know, that they, they, at a practical level, can be useful, really, just to, um, that, that, you know, that there are a number of, uh, 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 diagnostic type tools that I've referenced in in the paper, um, and I've picked those out because they, they they are validated in hyperactive delirium and they're brief as well. You know that you know they're, they 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 can they they it's possible to use them in a busy setting. You know it's not unrealistic, and they're, they're really just a kind of brief checklist. Um, so whether actually someone, you know, um, actually has a hard copy of that and you know most patients coming into a hospital setting um, and particularly elderly patients they're going to be at risk of delirium so there's an argument for people either having a physical copy of that checklist just to sort of remind them or at least holding the elements of that within their assessment framework in their minds really just to go through and think you know is there any evidence uh, that this person's struggling with attention is this picture fluctuating are they struggling to orientate themselves, et cetera? And, um, and, you know, ultimately, I suppose, just viewing, in you know, we know in most care uh, healthcare settings, this is a very, um, you know, delirium is a very common presentation. And from within that group, hypoactive delirium is going to be the most common type. So it's just making sure people are sort of attuned to that, really, and, and, and recognising that it, you know, they ought to be seeing quite a lot of this, and uh, they, they need to be uh, on the lookout for it.
0: And and I suppose you know, while well, it's important to think about it and recognise it, actually not to overcomplicate things, because actually the diagnosis and the management, it, you know, is fairly similar. How, however, um, whether whether it's a hyperactive or hyperactive subtype.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, it really is about. Um, you know, the, the about picking up the hyperactive cases rather than saying, "Oh, there's a different way of managing uh, those cases." The, the management is, of them is is pretty much, you know, broadly the same. Really, it's it, it, the real issue is just uh, the management will get more and more difficult if the cases aren't picked up in the first place. And um, the biggest sort of opportunity to to change things is by picking it up. Sit, determining what's the underlying course and and reversing that. And uh, you know they're the absolute key principles of, of management. And that's gonna be yeah, like I say, that's the same for all the different types. It's just more difficult or it takes more effort to do that with the hypoactive form.
0: you've been listening to Dr. Christian Hosker talking about his article on hypoactive delirium, which is now available on BMJ.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast Rate us and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Our full back catalogue is available on SoundCloud. Just search for BMJ Talk Medicine. Thanks very much for listening and we'll be back soon.